Chapter 6 of For Every Music Lover. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by David Asbury. For Every Music Lover, a series of practical essays on music by Obertine Woodward Moore. Chapter 6 the piano and piano players when pythagoras the father of musical science some six centuries before our era marked and sounded musical intervals by mathematical division on a string stretched across a board he was unconsciously laying the foundation for our modern pianoforte how soon keys were added to the monochord as this measuring instrument was named cannot positively be ascertained we may safely assume it was not slow in adopting the rude keyboard ascribed by tradition to panpipes, and applied to the portable organ of early Christian communities. After the tenth century, the development of the monochord seems to have begun in earnest. Two or more strings of equal length are now divided and set in motion by flat metal wedges, attached to the key levers and called tangents because they touched the strings. In response to the demand for increased range, as many as twenty keys were brought to act on a few strings, commanding often three octaves. Guido d'Arezzo, the famous sight-reading music teacher of the eleventh century, advised his pupils to exercise the hand in the use of the monochord, showing his knowledge of the keyboard. The keyed monochord gained the name clavichord. Its box-like case was first placed on a table, later on its own stand, and increased in elegance. Not until the eighteenth century was each key provided with a separate string. No unimpeded triumphal progress can be claimed for the various claviers or keyboard instruments that came into use. Dance music found in them a congenial field thus causing many serious-minded people to regard them as dangerous tempters to vanity and folly. In the year 1529, Pietro Bembo, a grave theoretician, wrote to his daughter Helena at her convent school, As to your request to be allowed to learn the clavier, I answer that you cannot yet, owing to your youth, understand that playing is only suited for volatile, frivolous women whereas I desire you to be the most lovable maiden in the world. Also, it would bring you but little pleasure or renown if you should play badly, while to play well you would be obliged to devote ten or twelve years to practice without being able to think of anything else. Consider a moment whether this would become you. If your friends wish you to play in order to give them pleasure, tell them you do not desire to make yourself ridiculous in their eyes, and be content with your books and your domestic occupations. A different view was entertained in England during Queen Elizabeth's reign, where claviers were in vogue styled virginals, because, as an ancient chronicle explained, virgins do most commonly play on them. The virginal was usually of oblong shape, often resembling a lady's work-box. With the Virgin Queen it was a prime favorite, although not named expressly for her as the flattering fashion of the time led many to assume. 
if she actually did justice to some of the airs with variations in the queen elizabeth virginal book she must indeed have been proficient on the instrument quaint dr charles burney seventeen twenty six to eighteen fourteen declares in his history of music that no performer of his day could play them without at least a month's practice the clavier gave promise of its destined career in the elizabethan age shakespeare immortalized it and william byrd fifteen forty six to sixteen twenty three became the first clavier master he and dr john bull fifteen sixty three to sixteen twenty eight says oscar b in his great work on the clavier and its masters represent the two types which run through the entire history of the clavier bird was the more intimate delicate spiritual intellect bull the untamed genius the brilliant executant the less exquisitely refined artist it is significant that these two types stand together on the threshold of clavier art bull had gained his degree at oxford the founding of whose chair of music is popularly attributed to alfred the great as early as the year fourteen hundred claviers had appeared whose strings were plucked by quills attached to jacks at the end of the key levers to this group belonged the virginal or virginals the clavicembalo the harpsichord or clavecin and the spinet stops were added as in the organ that varied effects might be produced and a second keyboard was often placed above the first the case was either rectangular or followed the outlines of the harp a progenitor of this clavier type it was often highly ornamented and handsomely mounted each string from the first had its due length and was tuned to its proper note the secular music principle of the sixteenth century that called into active being the orchestra led also to a desire for richer musical expression in home and social life than the fashionable lute afforded and the clavier advanced in favor in france by fifteen thirty the dance that promoter of pure instrumental music was freely transcribed for the clavier little more than a century later jean baptiste lully sixteen thirty three to sixteen eighty seven extensively employed the instrument in the orchestration of his operas and wrote solo dances for it francois couperin sixteen sixty eight to seventeen thirty three now well nigh forgotten although once mentioned in the same breath with moliere wrote the pioneer clavier instruction book in it he directs scholars how to avoid a harsh tone and how to form a legato style he advises parents to select teachers on whom implicit reliance may be placed and teachers to keep the claviers of beginners under lock and key that there may be no practicing without supervision his suggestions deserve consideration today he was the first to encourage professional clavier playing among women his daughter marguerite was the first woman appointed official court clavier player he composed for the clavier little picture tunes designed to depict sentiments moods phases of character and scenes from life he fashioned many charming turns of expression introduced an occasional tempo rubato foreshadowed the intellectual 
element in music and laid the cornerstone of modern piano playing. Jean-Philippe Rameau, 1683-1764, continued Couperin's work. What is generally recognized as the first period of clavier virtuosity begins with the Neapolitan Domenico Scarlatti, 1683-1757, and Johann Sebastian Bach, 1685-1750, the German of Germans. The style of Scarlatti is peculiarly the product of Italian love of beautiful tone, and what he wrote, though without depth of motive, kept well in view the technical possibilities of the harpsichord. His Cat's Fugue and his one-movement sonatas still appear on concert programs. In a collection of thirty sonatas he explained his purpose in these words, Amateur or professor, whoever thou art, Seek not in these compositions for any profound feeling. They are only a frolic of art, meant to increase thy confidence in the clavier. In Germany, with grand old Father Bach, the keyboard instrument was found capable of mirroring a mighty soul. The germ of all modern musical design lies in his clavier writings. It has been aptly said of this master of masters that he constructed a great university of music from which all must graduate who would accomplish anything of value in music. Men of genius, from Mozart to the present time, have extolled him for the beauty of his melodies and harmonies, the expressiveness of his modulations, the wealth, spontaneity, and logical clearness of his ideas and the superb architecture of his productions. Students miss the soul of Bach because of the soulless mechanical way in which they deface his legacy to them. His twelve little preludes alone contain the materials for an entire system of music. The inventions, too often treated as dry-as-dust studies, are laden with beautiful figures and devices that furnish inspiration for all time as indicated by their title, which signifies a compound of appropriate expression and just disposition of the members, they were designed to cultivate the elements of musical taste, as well as freedom and equality of the fingers. His well-tempered clavichord has been called the pianist's sacred book. Its preludes and fugues illustrate every shade of human feeling and were especially designed to exemplify the mode of tuning known as equal temperament introduced into general use by Bach, and still employed by your piano tuner and mine. Forkel, his biographer, has finally said that Bach considered the voices of his fugues a select company of persons conversing together. Each was allowed to speak only when there was something to say bearing on the subject in hand. A highly characteristic motive, or theme, as significant as the noblest typical phrase, Developing into equally characteristic progressions and cadences is a striking feature of the Bach fugue. His suites exalted forever the familiar dance tunes of the German people. His wonderful chromatic fantasia and fugue ushered the recitative into purely instrumental music. As a teacher, he was genial, kind, encouraging, and in every respect a model. He obliged his pupils to write and understand as well as sound the notes. In his noble modesty, 
he never held himself aloof as superior to others. When pupils were discouraged, he reminded them how hard he had always been compelled to work, and assured them that equal industry would lead them to success. He gave the thumb its proper place on the keyboard, and materially improved fingering. Tranquility and poetic beauty, being prime essentials of his playing, he preferred to the more brilliant harpsichord or spinet, the clavichord, whose thrilling, tremulous tone, owing to its construction, was exceedingly sensitive to the player's touch. The early hammer clavier or pianoforte, invented in 1711 by the Italian Cristofori, who derived the hammer idea from the dulcimer, did not attract him because of its extreme crudeness. Nevertheless, it was destined to develop into the musical instrument essential to the perfect interpretation of his clavier music. His son and pupil, Philip Emanuel Bach, 1714-1788, proceeding on the principles established by his illustrious father, prepared the way for the modern pianist. His important theoretical work, The True Art of Clavier Playing, was pronounced by Haydn the school of schools for all time. It was highly extolled by Mozart, and to it Clementi ascribed his knowledge and skill. In his compositions, he was an active agent in the crystallization of the sonata form. From him, Haydn gained much that he later transferred to the orchestra. Impulse to the second period of clavier virtuosity was given by Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, 1756-1791, and Muzio Clementi, 1752-1832. Mozart, who led the Viennese school, developed the singing style of playing and the smooth-flowing legato, leaving behind him the triumphs of his wonder boyhood with spinet and harpsichord. He boldly entered the public concert hall with the pianoforte, now greatly advanced by the improvements of Silbermann. Mozart brought into use its special features, showed its capacity for tone shading and for the reflection of sentiment and may well be said to have launched it on its career. Tradition declares that his hand was fashioned for clavier keys, and that its graceful movements afforded the eye no less pleasure than the ear. His noble technique, based on his profound study of the Bachs, was spiritualized by his own glowing fancy. In his playing, as in his compositions, every note was a pearl of great price. With his piano concertos, he showed how clavier and orchestra may converse earnestly together without either having its individuality marred. The same equilibrium is maintained in his piano and violin sonatas and his other concerted chamber music. Amid all their persuasive and eloquent discourse, his charming forehand and double piano pieces written for himself and his gifted sister Marianne, and his solo clavier sonatas would prove his wealth of musical invention had he not written another note. Clementi, born in Rome, passed most of his life in London, where he attracted many pupils. Without great creative genius, he occupied himself chiefly with the technical problems of the pianoforte. He opened the way for the sonority of tone and imposing diction of the modern style. His music abounded in bold, brilliant passages of single and double notes. He is even credited with having trilled in octaves with one hand.
taking upon himself the management of an English piano factory, he extended the keyboard in 1793 to five and a half octaves. Seven octaves were not reached until 1851. His gratis ad parnassum became the parent of etude literature. Karl Tausig said, There is but one god in technique, Bach, and Clementi is his prophet. Losing the spirituality of a Mozart, the Viennese school was destined to degenerate into empty bravura playing. Before its downfall it produced a Hummel, a Moschelis, and a Czerny, each of whom left in their piano studies a valuable bequest to technique. Karl Czerny, 1791-1857, called King of Piano Teachers, numbered among his pupils Liszt, Dürer, Thalberg, and Jell. The Clementi School was continued in that familiar writer of etudes, Johann Baptist Kramer, 1771-1858, and began to show respect for the damper pedal. Its most eminent virtuoso was John Field, 1782-1837, of Dublin. Between these two schools stood Ludwig von Beethoven, 1770-1827, a giant on lofty heights. Every accent of his dramatic music was embodied in his piano compositions. Tones furnished him unmistakably a language that needed no commentary. In him, says Oscar B., there were no tricks of technique to be admired, no mere virtuosity to praise, but he stirred his hearers to the depths of their hearts. Amid his storm and stress, whispering and listening, his awakening of the soul, an original naturalism of piano playing was recognized side by side with the naturalism of his creative art. Rhythm was the life of his playing. A union of conception and technique was a high aim of Beethoven, and he prized the latter only as it fulfilled the requirements of his idealism. The high development of the mechanical in pianoforte playing, he wrote to a friend, will end in banishing all genuine emotion from music. His prophetic words might serve as a warning today. The past century has given us the golden age of the pianoforte. Advanced knowledge of acoustics and improved methods of construction have made it the magnificent instrument we know in concert hall and home, and to which we now apply the more intimate name, piano. Oscar B. calls it the music teacher of all mankind that has become great with the growth of modern music. As a photograph may convey to the home an excellent conception of a master painting in some distant art gallery, so the piano, in addition to the musical creations it has inspired, may present to the domestic circle intelligent reproductions of mighty choral, operatic, and instrumental works. Through its medium, the broad field of musical history and literature may be surveyed in private with profit and pleasure. Piano composers and virtuosos rapidly increase. Karl Maria von Weber, 1786-1826, stood on the threshold of the fairyland of romance. His scheme of a dialogue in the opening adagio of his Invitation to the Dance 
followed by an entrancing waltz and a grave concluding dialogue betokens what he might have accomplished for the piano had he lived longer franz schubert seventeen ninety seven to eighteen twenty eight and robert schumann eighteen ten to eighteen fifty six were the evangelists par excellence of the new romantic school schubert closely allied in spirit to the master builder beethoven was unsurpassed in the refinement of his musical sentiment the melody flooding his soul beautified his piano compositions to which only a delicate touch may do justice his impromptus and moments musical small impressionist pieces in which isolated musical ideas are clothed in brief artistic forms adapted to the timbre of the instrument may well be thought to have placed piano literature on a new basis the romantic temperament of robert schumann was nurtured on german romantic literature and music his impressions of nature life and literature he imprisoned in tones he was a profound student of bach to whom he traced the power of combination poetry and humor in the new music infusing his own vital emotions into polyphonic forms he gave the piano far grander tone pictures than those of couperon the dreamy fervor and the glowing fire of an impassioned nature may be felt in his works but also many times the lack of balance that belongs with the malady by which he was assailed his love of music became early interwoven with love for clara the gifted daughter and pupil of his teacher friedrich wieck to her he dedicated his creative power an attempt to gain flexibility by means of a mechanical contrivance having lamed his fingers he turned from a pianist's career to composition and musical criticism in becoming his wife clara gave him both hands in more senses than one and they shone together in a double star in the art firmament madame schumann had acquired a splendid foundation for her career through the wise guidance of her father whose pedagogic ideas every piano student might consider with profit her playing was distinguished by its musicianly intelligence and fine artistic feeling earnest simplicity surrounded her public and her private life and the element of personal display was wholly foreign to her she was the ideal woman artist and teacher who remained in active service until a short time before her death in eighteen ninety six those were charmed days in leipzig when the schumanns and mendelssohn formed the centre of an enthusiastic circle of musicians and created a far-reaching musical atmosphere felix mendelssohn eighteen o nine to eighteen forty seven in his work for the piano adapted to drawing-room use technical devices of his day and in his songs without words gave a decisive short story form to piano literature his playing is described as possessing an organ firmness of touch without organ ponderosity and having an expression that moved deeply without intoxicating living in genial surroundings he was never forced to struggle and although he climbed through flowery paths he never reached the goal he longed for until his heart broke delicate sensitive fastidious frederic chopin eighteen o nine to eighteen forty nine delivered his musical message with persuasive eloquence 
through the medium of the piano. It was his chosen comrade. With it he exchanged the most subtle confidences. Gaining a profound knowledge of its resources, he raised it to an independent power. Polish patriotism, steeped in Parisian elegance, shaped his genius, and his compositions portrayed the emotions of his people in exquisitely polished tonal language. Spontaneous, as was his creative power, he was most painstaking in regard to the setting of his musical ideas, and would often devote weeks to rewriting a single page that every detail might be perfect. The best that was in him he gave to music and to the piano. He enlarged the musical vocabulary. He recreated an enriched technique and diction, and to him the musician of today owes a debt that should never be forgotten. He is of the race of eagles, said his teacher, Elsner. Let all who aspire follow him in his flights toward regions sublime. The man who, by his demands on the piano, induced improvements in its manufacture that materially increased its sonority and made it available for the modern idea was Franz Liszt, 1811-1886. to He will always be remembered as the creator of orchestral piano playing and of the symphonic poem. The impetuous rhythms and unfathomable mysteries of Magyar and Gypsy life surrounding him in Hungary, the land of his birth, strongly influenced the shaping of his genius. Like the wandering children of nature, who had filled the dreams of his childhood, he became a wanderer, and marched a conqueror, radiant with triumphs, through the musical world. Chopin who shrank from concert playing, once said to him, You are destined for it. You have the force to overwhelm, control, compel the public. The bewitching tones of the gypsy violinist, Bahari, had fallen on his boyish ears like drops of some fiery, volatile essence, stimulating him to effort. On the threshold of manhood he was inspired to apply the methods of Paganini to the piano. All his early realistic and revolutionary ideas found vent in his pianistic achievements. He gained marvelous fullness of chord power, great dynamic variety, and numerous unexpected solutions of the tone problem. Many technical means of expression were invented by him, and a wholly new fingering was required for his purposes. He taught the use of a loose wrist, absolute independence of the fingers, and a new manipulation of the pedals. To carry out his designs, the third or sustaining pedal became necessary. His highest ambition, in his own words, was to leave two piano players the footprints of attained advance. In 1839 he ventured on the first pure piano recital ever given in the concert hall. His series of performances in this line, covering the entire range of piano literature, in addition to his own compositions, given entirely without notes, led the public to expect playing by heart from all other artists. As a great pianist, a composer of original conceptions, a magnetic conductor, an influential teacher, an intelligent writer on musical subjects, and a devoted promoter of the interests of art, he stands out in bold relief, one of the grand figures in the history of music. His piano paraphrases and transcriptions 
are poetic resettings of tone creations he had thoroughly assimilated and made his own. In his original works, which Saint-Saint was perhaps the first to appreciate, students are now beginning to discover the ripe fruits of his genius. Faithful ones among the pupils who flocked about him in classic Weimar spread wide his influence, but also much harm was done in his name by charlatans who, calling themselves Liszt pupils, cast broadcast the fallacy that piano-pounding was a genuine pianistic power. Large-hearted, liberal-minded, and whole-souled in his devotion to his art and its true interests, Franz Liszt seemed wholly without personal jealousies, and befriended and brought into public notice a large number of artists. Hector Berlioz declared that to him belonged the sincere admiration of earnest minds, as well as the involuntary homage of the envious. At the opening of the Bayreuth Temple of German Art in 1876, Richard Wagner paid him this tribute in the midst of a joyful company. Here is one who first gave me faith in my work when no one knew anything of me. But for him, my dear friend Franz Liszt, you might not have had a note from me today. Arrival of Liszt in the concert field, especially before a Parisian public, was Sigismund Thalberg, 1812-1871, who visited this country in 1855 and literally popularized the piano in America. Alfred Gell and Henri Ertz, who had preceded him, doubtless prepared the way for his triumphs. He and the Creole Chopin, Louis Moreau Gostchalk, attracted much attention by several joint appearances in our musical centers of the time. Thalberg was a pupil of Hummel, and felt the influence of his teacher's cold, severely classic style. He possessed a well-trained, fascinating mechanism with scales, chords, arpeggios, and octaves that were marvels of neatness and accuracy, and a tone that was mellow and liquid, though lacking in warmth. His operatic transcriptions, in which a central melody is enfolded in arabesques, chords, and running passages, have long since become antiquated, but his art of singing on the piano and many of his original studies still remain valuable to the pianist. When Liszt and Thalberg were in possession of the concert platform, they occupy the attention of cartoonists as fully as Paderewski at a later date. Liszt, his hair floating wildly, was represented as darting through the air on wide-stretched pinions with keyboards attached, a play on flugel, the German for grand piano. Thalberg, owing to his dignified repose, was caricatured as posing in a stiff, rigid manner before a box of keys. Rubinstein and von Bülow offer two more contrasting personalities. Anton Rubinstein, 1830-1894, was the Impressionist, the subjective artist who recreated every composition he played, the Russian tone colorist he has been called, and the warmth and glow with whom he invested every nuance can never be forgotten by those who were privileged to hear his titanic interpretations, over whose very blemishes was cast the glamour of the impassioned temperament that caused them. May heaven forgive me for every wrong note I have struck, 
he exclaimed to a youthful admirer after one of his concerts in this country during the season of 1872-1873. Certainly the listener, under the spell of his magnetism, could forgive, almost forget. Hans von Bülow, 1830-1894, was the objective artist, whose scholarly attainments and musicianly discernment unraveled the most tangled web of phrasing and interpretation. His Beethoven recitals, when he was in America in 1875 to 1876, were of a special value to piano students. As a piano virtuoso, a teacher, a conductor, and an editor of musical works, he was a marked educational factor in music. In his youth, Johannes Brahms, 1833 to 1897, the great apostle of modern intellectual music, made his debut before the musical world as a brilliant and versatile pianist. Once, when about to play in public, Beethoven's magnificent Kreutzer Sonata with Remini, who was the first to recognize his genius, he discovered that the piano was half a tone below concert pitch, and rather than spoil the effect by having the violin tuned down, the boy of nineteen unhesitatingly transposed the piano part which he was playing from memory into a higher key. The fire, energy, and breadth of his rendering, together with the splendid musicianship displayed by this feat, deeply impressed the great violinist Joachim, who was present, and who became enthusiastic in his praise. Schumann, on making his acquaintance, proclaimed the advent of a genius who wrote music in which the spirit of the age found its consummation, and who, at the piano, unveiled wonders. By others he has been called the greatest contrapuntist after Bach, the greatest architectionist after Beethoven, the man of creative power who assimilated the older forms and invested them with a new life entirely his own. His piano works are a rich addition to the pianist's store, but whoever would unveil their beautiful proportions all aglow as they are with sacred fire must have taken a master's degree. Two pupils of Liszt stand out prominently, Karl Tausig, 1841 to 1871, and Eugene Dalbert, 1864. The first was distinguished by his extraordinary sense for style, and was thought to surpass his master in absolute flawlessness of technique. To the second, Oscar B. attributes the crown of piano playing in our time. Peter Ilyich Tchaikovsky, 1840-1893, the distinguished representative of the modern Russian school, was an original dramatic and fertile composer and wrote for the piano some of his highly colored and very characteristic music. Edvard Grieg, 1843, the national tone poet of Norway, has given the piano some of his most delightful efforts, fresh with the breezes of the north. The veteran French composer Charles Camille Sanson, 1835, has won great renown as a pianist, and was one of the most precocious children on record, having begun the study of the piano when under three years of age. He was the teacher that knew how to develop the individuality of the young Russian Leopold Godovsky, who has done such remarkable work on two continents as a teacher and a piano virtuoso. Perhaps the most famous piano teacher of recent times is Theodor Lesitsky of Vienna. His method is that of common sense, 
based on keen analytical faculties, and he never trains the hand apart from the musical sense. His most renowned pupil is Ignaz Jean Paderewski, the magnetic pole whose exquisite touch and tone long made him the idol of the concert room, and who, with time, has gained in robustness, but also in recklessness of style. Another gifted pupil of the Viennese master is Fanny Bloomfield Seisler of Chicago, an artiste of rare temperament and musical feeling and nervous power of whom Dr. Hanslick said that her virtuosity was stupendous, her delicacy in the finest florid work as marvelous as her fascinating energy in the forte passages. The great tidal wave set in motion by the piano has swept over the civilized world, carrying with it hosts of accomplished pianists. Of some of those who are familiar figures in our musical centers, it has been said that Teresa Carreño learned from Rubinstein the art of piano necromancy, that Rosenthal is an amazing technician whose interpretations lack tenderness, that de Pachmann is on terms of intimacy with Chopin, and that Raphael Josephi, the disciple of Tausig, combines all that is best in the others with striking methods of his own. Great is the piano, splendid its literature, many its earnest students, numerous its worthy exponents. That it is so often made a means of empty show is not the fault of the piano, it is due to the tendency of the day that calls for superficial glamour. Herbert Spencer was not so wrong as some of the critics seem to think when, in his last volume, he said that teachers of music and music performers were often corruptors of music. Those certainly are corruptors of music who use the piano solely for meaningless technical feats. End of chapter 6 the Piano and Piano Players. Recording by David Asbury, Jaredstown, West Virginia.